there is no way that we can now do an episode of Outrage and Optimism without mentioning breaking boundaries is what I found. Which I have now seen. Okay, here's the question. How many times have you seen it? How many times have you seen it by now? And uh, how many teardrops I've, did I've, you drop? I've been saving it because I haven't had an available young person to force to watch it with me, which I'm going to be doing. Oh, go on. The next day after. Oh, go on. <laughs> It's got David Attenborough. You know, yeah. it, uh, look, but it, but it is coming. But I will obviously watch it because we have a very exciting upcoming episode, which is all about breaking boundaries. And tell us a little bit about that. Um, how do you? How, can you not register for this episode? Is that correct? You can register. You need to go to our website and sign up to our newsletter, and then you will get all the information about it. And it is coming up on the twenty first of June. Paul, you and I will be interviewing Tim Jackson, Johan Rockstrom, and Yay. Christiana Figueres <gasps> together about their books. And Christiana's book also happens to be, you know, my book. But forget that. It doesn't matter. We're going to be interviewing them <laughs> what the, what the, on this of the ledger. You can't just... This, this, this is the, the news of the BBC. <laughs> by the way... No, it'll be very confusing, but we'll figure out pounds. a way to manage it. Okay, 21st of June. Sorry, but why are we... Inter- I, 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 I don't understand this. Why are we interviewing Christiana? Why don't we just interview Johan and Tim? This is some, doesn't make any sense. Is Christiana allowed to ask herself questions? Could be a whole new kind of medium we've created. <laughs> Don't miss it. Sign up on our website. What is our website? What is our website? Globaloptimism.com. You should know that by now, Paul. Global Optimism. I know, but... Uh, oh, oh, sorry know, for the listeners. The listeners yeah. don't know. Globaloptimism.com. <sighs> T- uh, professionalism. It's all about professionalism. I, I have no idea what Clay is going to do with that recording, but good luck, Clay. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss the upcoming G7 Heads of Government Summit. We speak to Dale Vince, founder of Ecotricity. Plus, we have poetry from Mel Chante. Thanks for being here. So this is a big week. I live in the southwest of England and I can attest that some beautiful spring weather will be awaiting the G7 heads of government when they arrive just around the corner in Cornwall in a few days. The heads of government of the UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the US and the head of the Council of the EU will all be in Cornwall in a few days time and it is looking positive that this will be a big moment for climate. Already in the pre-meetings of ministers that always happen in the run-up to these things, there's been some good signs. The foreign ministers have noted the impact of climate change on the world's most vulnerable. The health ministers have acknowledged the link between health, environment and climate change. The trade ministers have agreed that addressing climate change needs coordination. The finance ministers have supported mandating climate-related financial disclosures and reaffirmed a commitment to $100 billion in finance for developing countries. And the environment ministers have committed to transitioning away from coal and ending international financing of coal power plants. Now, that's all good stuff. And of course, it comes within the context of a global deal on a minimum tax threshold that will theoretically add much needed revenue to all public coffers and help governments deal with thorny issues like climate change. However, We've been here before and we should be cautious. A previous G7 communique said that heads of state would, and I quote, 
urgently reduce our dependence on imported energy through conservation and the development of clean alternative sources. And I wonder, would either of my co-hosts like to guess the year that that was part of 1973. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's not, but only because there was not a G7 in 1973. The first G7 was 1975, and that was from the original G7 communique in 1975. So the question we have to ask... That was a test to see if you knew when the G7 started. And your point is, your point is, we haven't moved. Well, the point is, is this going to be any different? Or will people be sitting here in another... 45 years and reflecting on the fact that there were good words but no action what do we think i mean there's an even bigger problem tom which is that basically you've you've sort of said all the things i wanted to say and i've been preparing for a couple of days sorry christiane you're about to say i was gonna say if in 45 years we come around and still are asking this question we will all be glue 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 underwater <laughs> Well, there's that, exactly. But seriously, I mean, the G7 is an interesting mechanism, right? It's the richest countries, not necessarily the richest, rich, democratic, developed countries. They have a moral responsibility to lead. This is a key moment. I mean, we cannot have a successful COP26 at the end of the year unless the G7 goes well. First of all, do you agree with that assessment? And secondly, how do you think it's going to go? <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, it's it's, fa it's fabulous news, isn't it? Um, that uh, governments are all coming together like this, couldn't be happier. The communiques, you know, from the finance ministers read absolutely superbly. Um, nothing to really not like there at all. A task force on nature-related financial disclosure. How exciting is that? Um, and this recommitment to the 100 billion. Now, yeah, I also did read some article in The Guardian talking about biodiversity, saying the world has failed to meet a single target to stem the destruction of wildlife uh, in the last decade, uh, according to the UN. So, yeah, we, we, we are in danger of announcing ourselves into a state of relaxation. Um, it is the time to turn, you know, these proclamations into action before we, um, you know, collapse well, but I mean, proclamations aren't enough, but they're important, right? And they do move us forward to a certain degree. What do you think, Christiana? I think, thank you for reading that out from the 1975 statement, Tom. It really does raise a very important question, and that is, what is different yeah. between 1975 and the year 2021? And I would say what I think is different, and I don't know if this is just because I'm such a stubborn optimist, um, is that there is th that 1975 statement, I think, is a flag that was raised uh, without and maybe to, you know, waffle in the wind without much ground under it. My sense is that the same flag basically being raised now is raised on much firmer ground. Uh -huh. And it is ground that is enriched both by the understanding of the science as well as much more awareness of the impacts, but also, and most importantly, uh, a, a very, very quickly growing realization that we're actually better off by doing this. I mean, will we stop this doom and gloom thing because it is driving me nuts? Uh, we have to move, and we are moving over toward understanding that it is simply a better world. It is a safer world. It is better for everyone. We have better jobs, better air, better energy, da-da-da, on and on and on and on, better land use. Um, and we have to finally get over that hump. 
in order to ensure that this flag that will hopefully be raised again by the G7 really stands on such firm land um, that it will not falter. Hmm. I'm sure we all agree to make these unprecedented changes in our societies. There's no turning back now. We have to have reached a point of no return and all the all the closed doors have to open. And anyone that tries to stand in the way of that must be told, what was that phrase you used, Christiana? I can't handle the negativity anymore. We've got to get rid of it. Hmm. So I, I, but just to, and I, I sense Christiana with that reflection back on 1975. I know you well enough to know that slightly depressed you, um, which I think is understandable. And to just dig a bit further into your analysis there, it's tricky, right? Because I do believe that this moment is different and that we can actually precipitate more breakthroughs now because of the work that's gone on in the intervening years between then and now to establish the transformation of economics, to establish the alternatives, etc. But the interesting thing based on what you just said is it was always true that we'd be better off if we did this, right? Energy independence was the thing in those days. And it was true even then that the US and the EU and other places would have been better off being independent from it, from, from the sources of fossil fuels and all of the problems that that's created in the intervening years. And it wasn't enough to make that transformation. It's taken those intervening years to actually create the structures and the pathways to now mean that we have a real shot. Because it's true that in then, in 1975, we didn't really, it was kind of hot air. All of our futures depend on whether this is hot air or whether it's real this time. Yeah, I mean, it was always true. But but honestly, did we understand that it was true? No. Yeah. I think, you know, if you had, if you had polled even, you know, highly educated people, I think the poll results would have told you, well, you know, it's a huge cost. It's a huge responsibility, da-da-da-da-da. But we would not have had... Uh, the the benefits, which are not even co-benefits, the the core, not co, core benefits understood until very recently, Tom, very recently. And I would actually argue these are even post-Paris understandings mm. that we have uh, now been now now been gathering. The other thing that is fundamentally different is we were not standing at the precipice in 1975, and yeah. now we are. We are staring down the precipice and we have to make up our mind. Are we going to jump or are we actually going to build a bridge? And, it, the, and, and the, the choice is very clear. We have totally run out of time. We had a much, much more lax sense of timing in 1975. Um, it, it's just not there. That, that whole elasticity of choice has been totally removed. Hmm. And Paul, I'm really curious because one of the things that's in this G7 communicate, I think stronger than any before, is about disclosure. Task force on climate-related financial disclosures is central. What do you think? Of, you've worked on disclosure of corporate climate risk for decades. It feels like it's an idea that's coming of age. It's coming of age. I'm going to tell you a story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Oh, well, it was more than 20 years ago when myself and Tessa and others, we began the disclosure. It used to be carbon then, not climate, but uh, we, we built it up and 
Paul and Jeremy and others, and we were all spent years and years and years. And then, and then Mr. Miliband gave us some money for a Climate Disclosure Standards Board. And then, lovely Mr. Carney come from the Bank of England and made the task force. And now look at it, all the biggest governments have come together. <laughs> Brings tears to my eyes to know that it's all turned out right in the end and gives me real confidence for us to be able to do things if we work together. Touching. I can see tears just rolling down the eyes of Tom and Christiane. They are in a they are in a state. So I'm going to just pull us back for a second after that kind of quite heartwarming story. Actually, um, bit of a personal story there. Tears running down my own cheeks. In fact, um, you know that moment of realization that you talked about. You know, have you you know this terrible? You know, Paul. Just just to be clear, I sometimes tear up because of my passion about climate change, but I also tear up when I am laughing so hard, <laughs> as in now. You can use that if it's easier for you, Christiana, but I know when a soul's been changed. That's all I'm Christiana's saying. famously afraid of showing her emotions, of course. The power of a story, just a simple story, of people with laptops and intention. It's very... Anyway, no, you know you know the insects... I know it's a kind of ridiculous thing, but I just want to mention the terrible thing about the insects dying. I was at a conference and the, the marvellous Van Danashiva just sort of looked at us all and said insecticide and we were like oh oh yeah of mm. course if you use insecticide you will kill all the insects and it's just it's like i think we're at a moment like that about the climate we've just realized like i loved what you said christiana we're at the precipice and we either just like jump off or build a bridge it's the perfect metaphor very special moment in the history of the world so, so you do feel, and and we'll we move on to other things, but you do feel like this is a moment of, of inflection. And maybe just explain for the listener quite what is happening in disclosure. Just, just give us a couple of minutes on why this is important. If you can, if, if you, you can, can, Paul, <laughs> if you can muster it. This is a test. What have you learned in twenty five years of working on this issue? Do you want me to talk fast or slow? It's your choice. I can talk at incredible speed or slowly. You know, it's just a choice. Which would you prefer? Uh, I think I'm going to go for medium, not being quite sure of what either extreme <laughs> consists of. Well, broadly speaking, um, myself and others started an NGO called the Carbon Disclosure Project back in the year 2001, and we worked to get companies to disclose uh, to their investors because investors are very interested in how companies perform and also to their customers, and it grew over time. But accounting standards bodies got involved from about 2007, 2008, the distinguished work of Lois Guthrie and others bringing together the big four accountants, and they built up uh, guidance for how companies should report and then the genius of Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, was to broaden that out into an industry-wide intergovernmental coalition that came up with uh, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. And now, with many thousands of companies reporting against the Task Force's guidelines on how companies should report in their annual reports to their regulators about their greenhouse gas emissions and their strategy on climate change, with all of that happening primarily out of... Uh, 
were groups of central bankers and others. National governments had said, right, it is time that we use the power of our parliaments, of our laws, to make sure that companies across the whole world report formally on their greenhouse gas emissions, strategy on climate change, and critically how they are decarbonizing to keep us below uh, two degrees or indeed one and a half degrees, which is critical for the global business system to operate within planetary boundaries. Hurrah for the governments! Wait a second, do I say amen or genuflect? Uh, you could do either. Both would be ideal, uh, you know. <laughs> All right, so this is the moment. I so, so basically what you're saying is if you're an investor and, you, and climate change is going to have a material impact on the companies you put your money into, we're now getting to the point where those companies are going to consistently disclose all the information you need, and that is going to change how money is invested, and that is going to change the world. Well, I hope so. I mean, what would really change how money is invested is if we can tax carbon. And actually, I do want to bring up the fact that the G7 communique of finance ministers said that they would use uh, the optimal range of policy levers to price carbon. Yeah, interesting. So the point is, there's no point measuring it if there's no price for it. But if there's a price for it and you measure it, then financial markets can do what they do very, very well, which is change everything at speed. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to move on to our interview in a second. Anything either of you'd like to raise before we do so? I actually wanted to read out uh, from James Miller, age 19, from Glasgow in the UK, who sent this request via email. He said, at the moment, it's looking unlikely that we will close the gap between current 2030 pledges and where we need to be. So what happens next? If the ratchet mechanism means that it takes another few years before governments will go through another round of ambition raising, how can we get everyone's policies and plans aligned with one and a half degrees in place with all the urgency that's needed to implement the actual changes by 2030? Good question. I guess that would be a question for our, for you, Christian. A question for me. Okay. Very important question. The fact is that some governments, let's say the EU, the United States to begin with, but some others as well, have actually already put up their 2030 pledges that are in line with a halving of emissions. But it's not good enough to just have a few. We have to have global emissions go down to one half. So that is the work from here to Glasgow and in the event that uh, that not all countries come forward, we do have to remember that what is materially important is that the large countries, the large economies do it um, because emission levels will mostly depend on them. There is no guarantee that this is going to happen, but because there is self-enlightened interest here of governments, of corporations, of financial institutions, there is likely to be a movement toward accelerating these mitigation commitments over the next few years. So are we uh, pinning our hopes on a uh, leaf that is floating down the river? Maybe, but we have the market and the economics on our side. And last time I looked, the dollar was actually quite powerful. Sadly so, because I wouldn't want to say this whole thing depends on capitalism, but right now it could be aided by capitalism until we have an alternative to capitalism. And before we move on to other things, a shout out to the very same James Miller who's been involved in a countdown clock that is now live in Glasgow. So this clock, is actually going to be counting down the time until we overrun our carbon budget for 1.5 degrees, and it's going to be counting up 
the percentage of world energy generated by renewables. So, so uh, a very interesting visual of outrage and optimism. And we will put it in the show notes so that you can take a look and follow James's clock. That's brilliant. Uh, uh, outrage it. and optimism by the numbers. Well done, James. Mm. Um, I'm actually going to read a very short one, and you'll understand why in a minute. This is from uh, Taticia Busa in Australia. And she said, so, 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 so very good and inspiring. Thank you. Hashtag Clay Crush. So I'm hoping we it's can get growing. that trending. It's growing. Yeah. Oh, it's growing. Yeah, exactly. Boy. It's building. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. See, it's not, it's a, it's oh, a movement. Boy. It's a movement. It's not a moment. It's a movement. No, no, exactly. You know, maybe I've got one, you know. <laughs> it's going worldwide from Yorkshire, now yep. Australia. The hashtag the whole... people is Clay Crush. Yes. And it's growing. Our movement is growing stronger every day. <laughs> Okay, so this week we have an incredible conversation for you with the tenacious and innovative Dale Vince. Now, Dale is a remarkable force of nature. He founded Ecotricity, who will be known to many UK listeners as the first 100% clean energy electricity provider, green energy company. He's also the chairman of Forest Green Rovers, the world's first plant-based carbon neutral football or soccer team. And his company, Sky Diamond, makes precious gems from carbon capture. His next adventure may well be in UK politics. This great interview that Cristiano and I did, sadly, Paul couldn't make it. We hear Aww. what underlies Dale's motivation and how his determined and stubborn optimism has made his venture successful in demonstrating what we can do to solve the challenges posed by the climate crisis. You're going to really enjoy this. This is Dale Vince. We'll see you on the other side. Dale, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on a day in which your team is playing. So uh, you must be sitting on the edge of your seat. But he's not but, missing um, the match, we should point out. His commitment he's is not that missing high the to match the yet. Yeah. No, no, no. We will, we will make sure that window. we release Dale. <laughs> we will make sure that we release you. Are you in the stadium? Oh, absolutely. Bear with. Bear Let's with have a show you the view. Oh, fantastic. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm looking out the window. <laughs> For listeners, we're looking at, at, a, at a pitch that's currently empty, but I'm very sorry that we're not. I, I think maybe we'll stay with you and live stream the game. <laughs> <laughs> very exciting. But well, we will make sure that we release you before uh, before that starts. Um, but, but Dale, that actually is a very nice place to start. Uh, you have had such a, I would say, colorful life with so many different, completely different components, right? From New Age Traveler to the founder of Ecotricity to, on, honestly, Dale, so many things that you bring together that for most people actually belong in completely different silos, right? We haven't even gotten to the sky diamonds yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. So we'll get to the diamonds. We'll get to the diamonds. <laughs> but we would love you to give us, um, and uh, sadly, it has to be an executive summary, of how did you end up with the idea of A, buying a football team, B, making them fully vegan? How do you keep them vegan? Um, and how... I, I, yeah, what what happens if somebody is caught eating a huge beefsteak <laughs> on Sunday night? Um, but how did this idea come about and what is your current experience of it? Yeah, so like um, it's a pretty straightforward story. So I never planned to buy a football club, never expected to be involved in football. It began 10 years ago, really just as a rescue mission of our local football club. Um, so it's like 
I don't know, 15 minutes down the road from where I live. Uh, the guys were in trouble. I'd read about it in the local papers. I came to see them and they said, a little bit of cash to help us go through the summer and we're okay. So I did that. Club was 120 years old. It seemed important, big part of its local community. And then at the end of the summer, they said, look, uh, actually our troubles are bigger than that and you need to kind of take over, be responsible, <laughs> you know? And I was like, whoa, I'm a bit busy for that. I don't think I want to, but it was a stark choice. See them With, with all of your experience in that field, of course. <laughs> That's right. Zero. That's right. I don't think, yeah, they didn't care about that. They just want somebody to take, you know, take responsibility <laughs> and, and save it. And um, <clears throat> so without thinking it through which is my favorite way to do things really, because, you know, thinking it through can just get in the way. I thought, well, let's do it. You know, it's 120 years old, we'll save it. How hard can it be to run a football club? And that began the journey, the adventure really. And <clears throat> I immediately bumped into things that we needed to change. I think it was day one or day two. And I saw that we were serving a beef lasagna to our players in, in the stadium here, training day food. And I was horrified because actually that made me part of the meat trade and I couldn't do that. So I sat down with the coach and the chef straight away and said, look, we have to change that. And they said, yeah, no problem. We can do that. Then we sat down with the players and we said, look, um, red meat is not uh, a diet choice for serious athletes. You know, it will impede your performance. And the players were like, fine, you know, we're up for that. So we immediately took Seriously? red meat off the menu. That was that nice. easy? I can't believe that it was that easy. That was that easy. <laughs> come on, that, come on. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a willful person and that may have had an impact. Um, but you know, the, it wasn't presented <laughs> as an option, I'm sensing. <laughs> well, I guess. I mean, for me, it wasn't an option. And if somebody had said to me, you can't do this, uh, that's not possible or you're not allowed to do it or whatever, I would not have stayed part of the football club because that was a choice I was not going to make. I wasn't going to be a part of the oh, meat trade okay. uh, for anybody or okay. for anything. Um, and, you know, the Sun newspaper called it the red meat ban. They made it made us national news. And that gave us a platform to talk about why we were doing it. And really, the whole journey began there because we just kept bumping into things about the club that were wrong, that we had to change according to our principles. And I realized fairly quickly that we were going to have to, in effect, build a green football club something that hadn't been done before and that we would be talking to an audience of people that really hadn't been talked to about these issues before, sustainability, football fans, you know, they don't kind of go together. And that's what's given exactly. us the most, yeah, it's given us the most incredible media coverage around the world, this, this improbable combination that we've pulled off, you know, we've made it work. So are we right in saying that all the players, if they play for Forest Green Rovers, are required to be totally plant-based <laughs> at the stadium, at home, how does that work? How do you police it? Or is that not right? No, not right. Not right. What we do is we don't tell anybody what to do. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but what we, uh, when, when we take responsibility for something, so say food, then we yeah. do it according to our principles. So it's not just for our players, but it's okay. also for our fans and our staff and everybody that comes to the stadium. So the food that we prepare for other people is vegan. Um, and, you know, our principles are, are about sustainability and ethics as well. So it, it goes beyond food, but food is the issue that gets all of the attention. Even now, 10 years later, it's all about the food, which is amazing to me. <clears throat> and, you know, veganism is more normal now. You know, it, it's, it's quite a yes. quite a well understood But it wasn't thing. 10 years ago. <clears throat> no, it wasn't. You're right. Which, you know, life moves on, doesn't it? You know, and... Um, our players actually have taken it into their own lives. Every year, two or three players go vegan completely because they feel the benefits. And that's a lovely story every time it happens. Our fans have gone veggie and vegan. They buy electric cars and solar panels. You know, our fans have embraced wow. this. They haven't tolerated it. It's, it's amazing. And wow. what we found is 
we came into it thinking we won't be preaching to the choir. This could be difficult, which made it more appealing to me. And we've come out of it and said, you know what? Football fans are just like ordinary people. You put this information in front of them. You tell them why you're doing the things that you're doing. You let them understand that and take that away with them and they will make changes in their own lives. Any any vegan-based chants in the stadium? I mean, I used to go to quite a lot of football matches, and the chants are often quite colourful. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two. My favourite. My favourite is when we played Bath uh, very early on. Maybe we were a couple of years in. We were winning four 0 It was my birthday. I remember it. And um, <clears throat> so they were four 0 down, and they sang this song to the tune of an old '60s number, "Where's Your Mama Gone?" And they were singing, "Where's Your Burger Van? Where's Your Burger Van?" Just taunting us, which was so sweet and funny. I love. That was a classic, but uh, less 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 humorous. A couple of years ago, we played Tranmere, and uh, one of our guys fell over and laid on the ground for a little while, and and they shouted out something like, "You you probably won't want this. You'll edit it." But I'll tell you anyway. They shout out, "The dirty vegan bastard! He's eating our grass." <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what is what is fascinating to me, Dale, is that it it really um, are two very powerful stories of. Uh, what you speak about in your book about green populism and the importance of actually just telling stories, changing the narrative with your own life, with your own experience, as opposed to reciting a whole bunch of numbers and complicated graphs to people and, and just making this, you know, human, humanizing it, um, making it as normal as your kitchen table or as normal as, uh, as what you and your family eat. And it's just such a different approach, um, that honestly, I wish we would all follow much more that example. Understood. We like to show by doing. For me, it's the most important thing. I've been in renewable energy nearly 25 years now, which is like forever. And and I've, I've tried to use business as a tool to bring sustainability into the world, to prove that sustainability is a business issue, that it's not a mm. worthy cause just, but it's actually where the jobs and the economy of the future are. And I've done it in energy, transport and food. And football is a place where we bring all three together. And what we like to say is <clears throat> that living this green lifestyle isn't about giving stuff up. We can have burgers, cars, footballs, and even uh, football, sorry, <laughs> and even diamonds now. It's about doing things differently. There's, there's a better other way to do everything. And we can have a great life, but with a much lower yeah. impact. And that's what we're about trying to show people. Mm-hmm. So do we have to go into the diamonds now? We're definitely <laughs> going to ask you about diamonds. Can I, can I just ask you one question before we go there? Because we spend a lot of time talking to business leaders who run large companies, they want to transform them. And there's a lot of, you know, there's there's a lot of leadership now, um, but there's a lot of foot dragging as well. And until recently, there's been a lot of like, well, we can't do this until we get that kind of regulation and we need this thing to change. And there's a lot of barriers. And I just wonder, like, you know, you've been running a renewable energy business since 1996, when most school strikers who are changing the world now probably weren't born. Um, And... You haven't waited for these other elements of society to move forward. So I'm just wondering, how come how come you were able to do that? And is it just a question of conviction, determination, jumping in? And do you think that many of these other things could be moved forward if people were a bit more front foot with their convictions? Or do you think some of these arguments about structural barriers to progress are real? Um, <clears throat> if I was to give you a one word answer, I'd say yes. 
Uh, all you have to do is, uh, you know, have the will. To which of the many questions? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the first one, the first one, you know, is it just about the will to do it? Yeah. It is just about the will, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's what I've found. And like I said before, I'm a very willful person and I'm not interested in reasons that something can't be done, only in how to find a way to do things. And, you know, often you hear, you hear of big companies with CSR plans and targets out to 2050 and stuff like that, you know, and, and I think, guys, if you really want to do something, you can do it. People say to me, how do Just you do, do it at a football club? Just do it. Exactly. Yeah. It's the most yeah. important thing. Structural problems, they exist, but they are not reasons not to get cracking. They're really not. You know, we need governments of the world to change the playing field. At the moment, it's uneven. It's uh, it's tilted in favor of fossil fuels and animal farming, the two big things driving all of the crises affecting us. And so we need to change the subsidies, the taxes and the regulations. Absolutely. But look, it's happening. You know, people want this stuff. They want electric cars, plant based food and yep. all that kind of stuff businesses are delivering it it could happen faster if governments get involved but it's happening anyway yeah. and do people want a different kind of diamond <laughs> i think they do <laughs> i think they do and, and what is that so uh sky diamonds is an idea i came up with quite a while ago first probably 10 years ago and then we started working on it seven years ago and i was daydreaming about geoengineering how to take carbon out of the atmosphere to tackle the climate crisis. Because after we reduce emissions to zero, we've still got too much carbon in the atmosphere. Um, and I realized that was only half the job. We actually had to lock it up into a, an enduring form of carbon. It was a quick, mm. quick skip from there to realize that the most enduring form we know of is a diamond. And I wondered, wouldn't it be amazing if we could take atmospheric carbon, which we have too much of, and use it to make diamonds, which we quite like to have, And so we worked on the process for about five years. What I love about it is it's 21st century technology. It's not low carbon. It's not zero carbon. It's negative carbon. And mm -hmm. that's exactly the kind of process that we need. Our ingredient list is the wind, the sun, the rain, and atmospheric carbon. That's it. Nothing more. It's probably the cleanest industrial process ever created because the air that we put back into the atmosphere is cleaner than the air that we take out. And wow. so I love every everything about it. And then we looked at the diamond mining industry and the impact of that. Terrible. And these guys, they dig 1,100 tons of rock and stone to make a fifth of a gram carat of diamond. 1,100 tons for a fifth of a gram. They, they use 4,000 liters of water and create a half a ton of greenhouse gas emissions for that fifth of a gram. And so it's an enormous impact before you get into the social... To say nothing about labor conditions, yes. Dale, right? Absolutely. To say Absolutely. nothing about the labor conditions <laughs> there in addition to... Yeah. There's nothing good about diamond mining. So when we launched the idea in November last year, we at the same time rather... Uh, ambitiously called for the end of diamond mining. But we do think that it's uh, it's on the cards. You know, our argument is that we don't need to mine the earth because we can now mine the sky to make the very same thing. We like oh, to call it... I love it. Bling without the sting. It's bling, bling without, without the sting. The sting. Yeah. <laughs> that's, our that's our episode title for sure right there. I like totally. It. Okay. Yeah. Bling <laughs> without the sting. I love it. Can you... So, I mean, and, there... and, well, sorry, we're, we're like tripping over each other because we're so fascinated <laughs> about this. Um, Dale, and what kind of um, reaction are you getting from potential or actually even actual clients for these Sky Diamonds? The first reaction we've had is uh, incredulity, I would say. Uh, you know, like... What did you just say? Like, are you being exactly. serious? You know, I've been talking about the idea. Yeah, I mean, I've been working on it for like almost seven years. And the handful of people I've mentioned it to have just looked at me like I've just gone and lost it. You know, they're like, what? <laughs> Diamonds in the sky. Yeah, okay. 
Yes, what are serious. you on? <laughs> yeah. So we're making top quality. The, the the quality of the stones we make are amongst the the top one percent of all mined diamonds in the world in terms of clarity and color. So they're you know they're absolutely up there. Um, and they, but they come with um, with no sting, no environmental sting. And scale. I mean, you could presumably scale this up and produce. There's no shortage of carbon in the air, as we know, for other problems. You could scale <laughs> yes. it up and produce as many as we need. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment we can make, by the summer, we'll be able to make about 200 carats a month, which is a drop in the ocean. Uh, but within a year, we should be at about 1,000, which is still a drop in the ocean. Um, but, you know, we have ambitions to go further because the more we can make, the less mining happens. And I think it's, it's again, kind of the way the world is moving, you know, particularly amongst younger people, that, that they're very conscious of these issues. And there's a whole movement away from mine diamonds already. You know, I think last year, 600 million pounds or dollars worth of uh, man-made diamonds were sold in the American market alone. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of trend that we're hoping to uh, help accelerate with this very special kind of man-made diamond uh, made from the sky. Mm. And what what about price point, Dale? At what point, I imagine, the more you make, the more the price drops. At what point will you be at cost parity with an and a similar type quality mined diamond? Now, 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 now. right now, right now, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So that's how we'll launch. And as we make more, we'll make them cheaper. We want to make them more accessible. When I started with the idea, I thought, wouldn't it be really cool to be able to deliver at the end of a year to a company its entire carbon footprint in the form of a sack full of diamonds, you know? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so they can yeah, they can give to their employees, you know, wouldn't that be amazing? Just distribute them. <laughs> That's right. yeah. I love that. <laughs> can I I mean I, I, I love the topic of skydivers. You've got lots of questions. There's something you said earlier that really fascinated me. So Christiane, you got any more sky diamonds question or can I take us back no, a step? Well, well go ahead, go ahead. All right, okay. So you well, just because said, remember he needs to go for the game. Remember you need, yeah, that. we can't keep you too long. So you said a fascinating fascinating. Okay. <laughs> um you said a fascinating thing earlier, which was about when you were talking about going vegan with the football team and you said you got picked up by the sun and they kind of slightly ridiculed it. Now, most football teams, most businesses are terrified of ridicule from the tabloids. But what you said was we got picked up by the sun and that gave us a platform for transformation. Can you talk a bit about how you can, you know, that's not how most people think about that type of coverage. Can you sort of take us inside that and how you use that kind of media coverage for change? Um, absolutely. I think it is an attitude thing. You know, I'm not afraid of uh, adverse argument or coverage or stuff like that. I mean, in the case of The Sun, they sensationalized what was a very straightforward story about which we had no angst or shame or concern. Um, and they gave us a platform for it. And, you know, the irony is that um, about a year ago, the Sun sport correspondent came to our club tried our match day burger and loved it and wrote a glowing report about it. He's a big fan of our food now, you know. Uh, it was just, it was shocking back in the day. But I, I'm the kind of person that's not afraid of publicity. Um, I, you know, I do see it as a chance to communicate. And if somebody uh, begins that with a controversy or, or, or making something sound controversial when I don't really think it is, that doesn't matter to me, you know. I guess we're just not shy of speaking out and being who we are because... Um, it's an opportunity to communicate, which is what we look for. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people look to manage reputation by by not engaging with the media and not sticking their heads up above the parapet, you know, but we're the other way around. We're not trying to manage reputation here. We're trying to start conversations. 
I love that. That's There's amazing. There's another one-liner as title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Dale, I have to ask you, just because I'm so fascinated. I mean, if you look at the arc of this conversation where Christiana started, you know, Ecotricity, EVs, Forest Green Rovers, Sky Diamonds, a book. What's next? What are you going to do next? Uh, maybe politics, actually. It's crossed my mind. Because... <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's where I think we're uh, lacking, you know, in, in the... Th- in my analysis, we have the technology. We know that it's more economic. We have the imperative to act. It's in our interest, not just from the climate crisis perspective, but the human health crisis caused by our diets, the loss of habitat and wildlife. Even the pandemic is related to our diet because it comes from uh, the animal farming industry. Three quarters of all zoonotic viruses come from factory farming, for example. So we have the imperative Um People increasingly want to see that happen. Businesses are making that possible. And and that's a great kind of combination that's going places. And where we're lacking most is politicians, governments that get it, that actually get it and can make the changes, the very small changes that are needed. In Britain, we spend £12 billion a year supporting fossil fuels. In a world where we know we've got to fight the climate crisis, how does that make any sense? We at least need to stop doing things like that. Here we pay 20% VAT for solar panels to put on your house. But if you burn coal, you pay 5% VAT. You know, we have to end these anomalies to make it easier to do the right thing. And, um, and yeah, as I look at it, I think politics is possibly where I could have most impact now. I've been pioneering renewable energy for 25 years, electric vehicles, plant-based food. I've shown there's a business case for all of this, and maybe now there's a there's a need to get into politics and uh, pull some levers that way. I don't know. That is very exciting. Okay, I look forward. I'm not going to press you on which party it will be, unless you want to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> for me, for me, there would only be one party that makes sense. That would be the Labour Party. Okay, okay, love it. Dale, thank you I'm so much. I'm not going to press is... you at what level of politics you want to participate, <laughs> but if you want to tell us, that's all good. <laughs> I'm thinking there's a general election. It looks like it's two years away now because it's going to be brought forward. And I thought we were going to lose the first half of this vital decade to a, to a duff government. But they're going to bring the election forward, I think, to 2023. So maybe as an MP to try to get into parliament, hopefully to get into government and, uh, you know, bring some of these ideas and make them happen. Awesome. Very exciting. All right. Very now- exciting, Dale. Well. Now, I kind of feel like our last question, which is our traditional last question, is kind of not needed for you, Dale, uh, but we have to ask it because we always do. The podcast is called Outrage and Optimism. We think both are needed at this most critical moment. So where do you fall on that spectrum between outraged and optimistic, or are you all of both? I, I think I'm predominantly optimistic. You know, I uh, I don't waste any uh, emotional time being angry. I've been busy instead. And, you know, what I can see is uh, leading me to be only optimistic. You know, as I say, we've got the technology. We have the imperative. People want it. Um, we can do this. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Love it. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Pleasure. Dale, pleasure. what a pleasure to talk to someone uh, of, that, uh, of, of that level of optimism and creativity. And also, what a delight to know that you would be willing to put your time and energy into policy and public service. Uh, much, much more difficult, much more frustrating than private sector engagement. So um, thank you in advance for that. Thank you for your willingness to do that. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And guys, I've had a lovely time here chatting to you. So it's been a total pleasure. 
Yeah, but we can we can hear the noise of the warm up. Yeah, we can hear the noise <laughs> of the warm up game. So we better sure let you go. Oh, here it is. Oh, it's filling up. Look at that. Oh, there it is. Uh oh. Uh oh. Warming up. Oh, warming okay. Up now. Okay. Thanks, Dale. Thank you, Dale. Oh, Thank you so much. So how fantastic to get a chance to sit down with Dale and have a conversation about all the things that have motivated him. As you heard, he was in the stadium watching his football team play as we talked to him. What did you both leave that discussion with? Well, what a renaissance guy, right? He goes mm. from renewable energy company, solar uh, solar company, to uh, building his own sports car, to buying a fledgling um, stadium and turning it completely green and vegan to Devil's Kitchen, uh, the vegan canteen to producing diamonds that capture CO2 from rainwater. I mean, what, what is the common thread around all of this? The common thread is his concern on CO2 concentrations, right, in the um, in the atmosphere. But yeah. I just love the way that he doesn't go at it in just from one path, from one way of thinking, but he's actually uh, looking at so many different approaches to this. He's sort of kaleidoscopic. I mean, he, he's just uh, amazing. I've had the Pleasure to meet him before. What a, what a dynamic individual. His, his head office is in Stroud and the whole, which is this little sleepy town in the west of England. And it's all kind of covered with different kind of ecotricity buildings and just amazing what, what he's done. And what I particularly loved, um, you may have picked up on this, but uh, talking about the, the Sun newspaper, you know, make, uh, making fun of, of him with the football team and him saying, we're not trying to manage a reputation, but we're trying to start a conversation. What a genius entrepreneurial way of looking at it. And and then building out from that. And then, the, you know what I really loved? It, that He told the story about how football fans, you know, they were like really kind of crazy. They're like shouting at each other and... His club is all known as the vegans now, right? And one of the players goes down on the ground after scoring a penalty and they start shouting, the vegans are eating the grass. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's just like, it's such fun in a way, you know what I mean? But actually, you know, maybe this is the start of vegans becoming extremely cool. Yeah, I totally agree. That was the bit that really struck me as well, Paul. And we picked it up in the interview that actually, you know, he sort of said in this offhand comment, oh, they covered really bad news. They, you know, they gave us this terrible sensationalist negative press. And that was a platform. So we used that, you know, and it was just this very practical sense of how do you change the world? What are the tools you have available? He seems he's a very instinctive uh, communicator. I also love the bling without the sting as a description of the diamonds is just genius. And I can see why he's been so successful in bringing people along with his ideas because he's very big tent, he's very ambitious, he's very entrepreneurial, and he's very willing to just go with the tools he has available. I thought it was a very inspiring conversation. You know, Tom, I, I don't know if you, no, I don't think you had joined it as, as the secretariat yet when um, I was newly arrived there and I was offered, no, I was told um, that I was going to get media training um, in order to deal with journalists uh, that uh, wanted to condemn the process every day. And um, one of the things for anyone who's done media training, one of the things, the basic, basic 101 that they teach you is how do you pivot a question? 
How do you mm. pivot a question or a comment that comes at you from one direction and then you intentionally pivoted toward the message that you really want to give out? The fact that you're not answering the question uh, is, you know, completely irrelevant. But pivoting is really key in, uh, in, in getting your message out. And I just think this man does this pivoting, not just, you know, in press conferences, but he pivots. He pivots everything that is thrown at him negatively, all the messages, the criticisms. He just pivots them so brilliantly to make a much, much better story. So he doesn't go into the defensive about eating grass or, you know, whatever. He just pivots it to the message that he really wants to put out. And it's just so brilliant to see him do that as a corporate strategy, not just as a media tool. Totally. <laughs> I loved him talking about like uh, give, giving a company their carbon offsets at the end of the year in, in a little bag. Of, it's uh, a bag full of diamonds. It's, it's like, right. it's kind of, it's an image when you get it in your head. And you know what? Like uh, I, I was always into this idea 20 years ago of sustainability product marketing. What an awful phrase that is, sustainability product marketing. I found this phrase from Dale Vince that says it's so much better. He says, people want what they're comfortable with, what they know. But business can shift the paradigm and introduce the new things that nobody wants yet. The new things. And he's absolutely right. And I'm going to give you one more little jewel, a little diamond from Dale Vince that I found. He said, government sets the framework, business adapts, and people respond. But not necessarily in that order. (laughs) (laughs) What what a gem. What a real gem. A diamond making gem. A gem that makes diamonds. You get the idea. Awesome. All right. What fun this has been. So we now go, unless anything else? Well, I have several lengthy stories, but I just, always I, just don't think it's gonna, I just don't think you're going to allow me to do them. No, 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 I might no, do okay. them on my own. Quite, quite right. Just yeah. them out. Okay. So what happened many years so ago? So moving on, we have ago. this week playing moving us out. Moving on. We have a real treat for you. Mel Chante is a poet and an author and an artist based in Brooklyn, New York. Her soothing voice combines spoken word, storytelling and melody into a rhythmic kind of ethereal experience. And today she's performing her poem, Air. As ever, she is here to explain the art and the stories behind it. We'll leave you with her. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. My name is Mel Chante and my poem, Air, is inspired by the air that we breathe and the breath within us and how sometimes some people want to take that breath away especially as a minority, a Black woman, a Black person. Um, this poem was kind of an ode to the breath that we carry and how, how valuable it is, how it gives us life, and how we have given life to the land. I think it's important for us to talk about social justice because we are all connected to each other, and we are all sharing this earth, this land, together. We are all humans, we are all feeling people that have families, that have friends, that have feelings, Um, and we are all equals. And I think the more that we talk about these things, the more we begin to see each other as equals and, you know, see the love, see that we are all feeling humans. Um, And I think that will help us become more united and more harmonized. From the quality of the air we breathe to the quality of the water we drink, the pipes that we have in our homes, you know, hearing sirens as I'm walking home or someone is walking home, all of these things kind of affect the person, you know, living in this type of environment. And I thought it was important to write a poem that embodied that.
if I got a quarter. Every time I saw a cop car ride by the corner, I'd be a gazillionaire. Or a dime for every siren sound. Or a nickel for every drop of leaded water down poisonous pipes plus the asbestos seeped into air pipes. Or a penny. Anytime a black man was pinned up or pinned face to ground, limbs bound behind back while brothers and sisters gather round, I'd, I'd be richer than the amounts of hits it gets on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook or greater than the symphony of shook shuddered when arrested is uttered. Hymns hummed by melanated angels in huddles or the subtle settle of rose-petaled peace that eases into the lungs of a mother at the return of her daughter or son after streetlights that went on. I wonder. I wonder how many black or brown youth were taken into custody for something an officer himself used to or still does do. Or the sum of stolen breaths that add up to the hollowed stillness in a small child's chest who is waiting for daddy to come home to sing their favorite song as they sung along. Like old times, like old cries. We inhale to heal, exhale to rise. Above all surmise, it's no lie. There's nothing new under the gun, except a shot to end the life before it's truly begun. But we be the ones who birth everything under the sun. We be the breeze between trees the seas, the flower seeds, and the leaves. We the cool and the heat, the healers and the hips swinging on beat, the sky and the earth grounding your feet, the clothes on your back that began as a cotton seed, the sustained sustainability, the candied yams, cornbread greens, and the mac and cheese, the lover's hands held in a black midsummer night's dream, the kiss on the cheek of a newborn's rock to sleep, our great-great-grand's prayers for our souls to keep. We the roots. So deep. The culture. You seek the air you breathe. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of the podcast. Here, How is it going? Are you doing okay? This is a friendly check-in. How are you doing? Is it time for a walk outside? It might be time for a walk outside. Mel Shante with the lyrics, sound design, vocal artistry, and poetry that was that track called Air. It's amazing. Like all of our artists on this podcast, Mel is really talented. And there's so much more for you to check out. She has visuals you can go watch. She has a podcast. Shout out to a fellow podcaster. It's called The Daily Shine. She has a newsletter and Last but not least, a killer EP titled Flow that is on all streaming services. So you can check it out, stream it, 
share it and enjoy. So flow is really good. I've been spinning it in between editing the podcast today. It's hip hop with some lo-fi boom bap and just on top of it is Mel's lyrical mastery like icing on the cake. Some really engaging lyrics about black empowerment, female empowerment, and just loving yourself. So go spin it. It honestly made a weekday feel like a Saturday. Mel Shante. So have you seen Breaking Boundaries? It was amazing. You absolutely need to go check it out. Why? Because, well, A, it's a great film, but two, B, two, B, we're hosting a live event regarding the film with some people involved in the film on June 21st. And you gotta register for that live event. You can do that at our website, globaloptimism.com. Sign up for the newsletter. You'll get details right to your inbox. Did anybody else get kind of freaked out by those CGI people walking away from the earth? And it was like green and then it was yellow and then it was red and they were just like still walking. It was, yeah. That kind of freaked me out. Anyway, go watch the film. You'll know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson, and our producer is Clay Kernell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Marina Mancilla-Germán, Freya Newman, Santiago Monge, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Thank you to our guest this week, Dale Vince. I was thinking about it this week, and I think Dale Vince is the perfect combination of Tony Stark, who's, you know, Iron Man from the Marvel comics, Ted Lasso, and Richard Branson. What I'm trying to say is he has, you know, the ambition, willpower, the indomitable onwardness uh, that all sums up as stubborn optimism anyway ecotricity forest green rovers sky diamonds and more all in the show notes for you to go check out okay yeah so hashtag clay crush is absolutely sweeping the internet but let's remember how we got here if you love this podcast please leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts we might just read what you have to say live on the show And at Global Optimism is how you stay up to date on what's going on in the climate. So please give us a follow and message us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Okay, as always, lots for you to check out in the show notes. And you can always go to globaloptimism.com to find everything that we mentioned in the show. Another episode coming next week. So hit subscribe and we'll see you then. 